We have been in a series, today is part seven, seven weeks in a row this whole summer studying the topic of wisdom. We've been trying to figure out how do we become wise, what is it, and apply those things to our lives. We've been studying this character, a man named Solomon, a man known to be the wisest man, the scripture says it, the wisest man to ever walk the earth. And so we've been studying him and studying his writing and studying his teaching, studying his life to figure out how do we become wise. And so I just want to recap for you really quick. Maybe you've been in or out, missed it on vacation this summer. Maybe you've just been here. This is your first or second time coming. I just want to recap really quick for you what we've studied so far. And so we've been looking at the topic of wisdom. We've learned that wisdom, ironically, is the wisest thing that you could go and look for. It's the wisest thing you could do. There's a proverb about it. We've talked about putting wisdom over our wants, that when wisdom triumphs over our desires, when it trumps our desires, we find life. We've talked about how wisdom is knowing what to do and doing what you know to do. We've looked at how the unseen force, the thing underneath wisdom, this thing that guides us towards greater godly wisdom, is a reverent love for God. Another way to say that is demonstrating a fear of God. We show that reverent love for God by obeying God. He's good, so we trust him. We trust his word. We trust what he says, and so we obey him, and we love him, and we show that fear of God by our reverence for him. And last week, we saw the irony of the sage, the king Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, was also the biggest fool to ever fall. The guy that knew all the right things, wrote all the songs and the Proverbs, had all this great advice that we've spent weeks studying And he did not take his own words of wisdom. We learned that Solomon butted God. He loved God, but he made alliances by marriage with other nations to keep peace. He loved God, but he built a temple, but he built a palace for himself that was bigger, that took longer. He loved God, but he amassed great riches and hoarded wealth, taxed the people heavily. He loved God, but not completely. Solomon loved God, but he made small compromises all throughout his life, which led him eventually to turn away from God and worship other gods in his life. And that's kind of the thing with sin, is that sin, when we make those small compromises of moving away from God, doing something outside of God's will, when we do things that God says, don't do this, but do this, when we do those small things, it never is just about you. Sometimes we like to trick ourselves or talk ourselves out of something to make ourselves feel better about something because we can say, oh, it's just, it's just affecting me. What does it matter? This is just between me and God. The, the, nobody else is ever going to see this. Nobody else is ever going to know about it. Nobody else should really care about it. It's just my own personal business. Get your nose out of it. But the thing about sin is that it never ever is just isolated to you. The effects of sin are always go beyond that border. It's never just between you and God. The nature of sin is that it affects us and it affects the relationships around us and it even can affect the relationships down the line, our future descendants. And that's kind of where we're going to be stuck in today is looking at the effect of Solomon and the effect that Solomon's life had on his sons and his son's sons after him. 
and the play out, the fallout of Solomon's small compromises that eventually led a line of people that came from the man that was known, David, his father, the man that's known in the Bible as who had God's very own heart, that God loved dearly. How small compromises eventually compromised many, many generations of David's line. So we're going to be reading Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 5 today. This is going to be our uh, kind of guiding text today. And we're going to look at the second half of it. This kind of talks about idolatry. We're going to get to that eventually this year. But today we're going to be looking at the second half of this. It says, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or in the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me. Let's just pause and invite God's presence. He's already here. He's always been working with you. I heard your worship this morning. It was heartfelt and sincere, but let's just pause and give honor to God in this moment. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here. Thank you, God, that you are doing a good work today, Father. Lord, right now, God, before we even get into the sermon, I pray that you would just be preparing our hearts to respond to your word today, Father. Lord, I pray that you would be softening walls, God, that sometimes we put up to protect ourselves, God. I pray that you would be bringing things to mind and to light, God, that you want to deal with today, Father. Lord, we give you ourselves today. We give you our attention and our affection we give it all to you. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Can you just pause and just turn to the person next to you and just say, man, you look good today. It's okay if it's not true. You can say this lie. Does everybody feel better now? Good, because today's message is a little depressing. So here we go. How can this be, this verse, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 5, how can this be? This can be startling when you read this. When you think, why would God punish children that had nothing to do? Innocent children. Baby Landon, you saw him up here or just a little bit ago worshiping. Why would God lay the punishment? Why would God curse Landon? Why would he drop that on him when he has done nothing to deserve that? Why would he send and uh, uh, hurt him from the things that his parents or his parents' parents have done? And so I want to take time to do a little bit of biblical groundwork and to set up a stage to understand this verse a little bit better in our culture and context of why would God perpetuate the sin going on here? And so before we go any farther, let me show you an example of what this would look like in the Bible. Very common characters, people we've talked about quite a bit in this last year and a half or so. But let me show you all together what it looks like from start to finish. So there was a man named Abraham. He's the father of faith. He's blessed to bless. Jesus comes from the line of Abraham, but we all know, if you've been with us for a while in our study of him last year, that Abraham had his shortcomings. In Genesis chapter 12, we see this man called out by God to go into the wilderness to follow him. And we see that Abraham has this propensity towards a certain type of sin in his life. He comes into the land of Egypt, and he's scared. Why is he scared? Because he has a beautiful, ravishing, beautiful wife. And he's worried that if Pharaoh sees her, that he will kill Abraham and take his wife. So logically, he does the logical thing, right? Like, 
honey, just put on sweatpants while we're here. Don't put on makeup. Maybe wear a hat. Like, we'll get you a ski mask, right? The logical thing, no. He says, tell everybody you're my sister. That makes sense. And so he says, lie about it. Tell everybody that you're my sister. And so save my life. So Abraham mistreats Sarah, he fails to protect her, and he benefits, the worst thing about this all is that he benefits off of this moral compromise he forces his wife into. Sarah lies about the relationship with him, her and Abraham. And because of that, Pharaoh looks down and he sees this beautiful woman. And so he says, okay, great, let me pay you money, let me give you land, let me give you animals, let me have your sister to be my wife. And Abraham obliges. And so here Abraham is lying to Pharaoh's face, forces his wife into a lie, morally compromises her, fails to protect her, and the worst part of it to me is that he gains money off of it. Honey, go sell yourself so I can go to Hawaii for a little bit. That's great, Abraham, father of faith. And so here we are. God redeems it. He comes and interacts. He, uh, he protects Sarah. So that's, we think, man, Abraham, it's a one-time thing. This is early on in his journey. But then you skip forward eight chapters more, and you find that Abraham does the exact same thing in a different land to a different king. Abraham again lies, fails to protect his wife, and financially gets ahead because of the situation. Not only that do we see is that Abraham has this propensity to treat his children differently. He has one son, Ishmael, with one wife, and he has Isaac with another wife. And so at one point, Abraham has this preference for Hagar and Ishmael, but God says, it's okay, send them away because there's a division in the family. This is a little thing here. It's not like a preferential favorite treatment. It's more of a breaking of a father's heart, but I want to illustrate it here because this little thing here will grow after this. And so Abraham prefers or wants to protect Ishmael, but Sarah wants to elevate Isaac in the family. This causes division, not between them, but between the generations the tribes that come from Ishmael and Isaac later on for generations after generations of fighting. And so Abraham has this thing where he lies, he doesn't protect, and he gives some preferential treatment. So now Abraham has the promised son named Isaac, and we skip ahead a few more chapters to Genesis 26, and we see Isaac's story. And here's the thing, is that just like Abraham, Isaac does the exact same thing. When we get to Exodus 20, we see this verse, God will curse the generations to the third and the fourth generation. We think it's harsh, but if you change the wording a little bit, we have sayings that are very similar. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He's a chip off the old block, like father, like. So I want to read this to you, verses, chapter 26, verse 6. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Where the men, when the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, he said, She is my sister. He was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought, Kill me to get me, because they will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. But sometime later, Abimelech, the same king that Abraham lied to, the king of the Philistines looked out his window, saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. There's some freaky things going out there if that's your sister. Immediately, Abimelech called for Isaac and exclaimed, She is obviously your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac tells the same lie to the same person in the same land. It worked out really good for dad. I might as well do it too. 
Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Chapters 25, verse 28. And so we see Isaac do the same sin as the father, and now we see that he introduces another sin into the line, where he shows favoritism. Rebekah loves Jacob, but uh, uh, Jake, uh, Isaac loves Esau. And we see that this sparks sibling rivalry and family division. So you skip forward a few more chapters and you get their sons, Jacob, and you hear their story. Jacob's name literally means deceiver in the Hebrew. It's a con man, and that's much of his story. Jacob is a terrible person when you read his story. Much of his life is all about tricking people to get ahead in life, uh, lying to them. And so he tricks his blind father into giving him a blessing that was meant for his brother. He causes division so strong that he literally has to run away from home because he's afraid that his brother will murder him. This is generation three of lying. Later we see that he has a mistreatment and favoritism towards women, just like his father Abraham. Favoritism that causes future family division, great future family division. He gives preferential treatment to his sons, which makes it abundantly clear which one is his favorite. And so you're starting to see that in the first generation, the second generation, and now the third generation, this trending pattern that you see in the family. And this is the final one. You have Jacob, who has 12 sons. And you may notice one of them. He had a musical after him. He has an eye for fashion. Joseph, who had a coat of many. Good job. We are biblically, uh, you know, responsible. We know our Bible. Good job, guys. And so Jacob shows favoritism for his son Joseph because he loved his, that, his mother the most. He shows his favoritism by giving him this beautiful coat. And to make things really bad, uh, Joseph had kind of a pride problem. He loved to go to his older siblings and tell them uh, how he's going to rule them someday. He likes to tell them how you're going to bow down to me. Any older siblings in here that just know that that doesn't fly. Like, it doesn't matter. Me and my siblings, we still get together, and sometimes I have to remind them of their place in the family household. I don't care that you're an adult. I don't care if you have kids. I don't care if I'm a dad. I'm the eldest sibling. So anyways, that's my own thing. And so we see this taken to an extreme degree where Joseph's brothers, 10 brothers, they devise a plan. It begins with murder. Let's kill Joseph, that little brat. Then one of the brothers says, let's not kill him, that's way too bad. Let's just take it down a notch by enslaving him, selling him for money, uh, taking his coat, dipping it in blood, and telling our father that a wild animal ate him. That's way better than murder, right? And so they do that to him instead. You see this favoritism that has come down the line, and instead of getting better or trending up, it mutates, it gets worse, and now you have ten brothers that for years hide this dark secret about Joseph. For years, they hide and cover up this thing that they did to their own family, their own relative. And this is the thing that I want you to track here. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is infected, even children in the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me. And so you see that this isn't something that God puts on them. It's a natural thing that in the line of Abraham, you see that something Abraham dealt with, with lying, mistreating women, favoritism, family vision, that it trickles down to each following generation. 
And it doesn't get better, it gets worse, it mutates and affects more and more people. In the science realm, this is uh, not known as a curse, but it is known as a scientific fact. There have been many studies documenting the trauma of parents or previous generations being passed on to their unborn children. Research indicates that parents experience extreme poverty, traumatic events such as 9-11, abuse, or acts of violence. These events leave chemical tracers in the parents, which then can be later found in their children. Even their children's children. Ed Tronick, he's a uh, development, developmental clinical psychologist at the University of Massachusetts. He says, it's not the traumatic experience that is passed on, it's the anxiety and the worldview of the survivors. Meaning this, is that your past, our past, is in our bones. Your past, my past, very much so defines our present. Children not born into an abusive environment, not born into poverty, not born having experienced the trauma of their parents or their grandparents or great-grandparents, still carry the damage of those events in their bodies. It's unseen, it's buried, but it affects, notice the key word here, their world view. Kids that never experienced and had a want for a desire for money, but their parents came from extreme poverty, and you have these kids, and their kids' kids that have extreme anxiety and worry over their finances. A survivalistic mentality. Parents that suffered abuse or extreme violence that switched their brains from a thriving mode to just pure survival, they found those same stress uh, chemicals in their bodies as they did their kids. Kids that were never experienced to that. So quite literally, it passes on to the next kid and the next kid. Now these things can range from a predisposition to a certain mental illnesses that run in a family, to spiritual bondages, and to repeated patterns of sin, just like we see in Abraham's line. And if you take a moment right now, this won't feel far off to you. Every family normally has those certain things that runs in the family. And you can think, man, my father struggled with alcoholism. His father struggled with alcoholism. Uncle struggles with alcoholism. Or, man, this family, isn't this family member isn't talking to this family member. And that aunt didn't talk to that aunt for years. And that mom didn't talk to her daughter for years. And you see these trends or predispositions towards certain sin patterns, sin cycles that you can see in your family. And I told you, this is not going to be a great or fun sermon today. It might be a little depressing, but stay with me, okay? Turn to the other person next to you and say, you look really good. <laughs> We're happy. We can keep going. This is good. Even though a child may not have suffered the traumatic events of the parents or their grandparents, they are born with a past that has been buried and it affects them in the present. These effects, unchecked, undealt with in the spiritual realm, do not get better on their own. Once when I was much younger and broke, I had this car. It was a Park Avenue Buick. If you're familiar with the Buick line, it was the less sporty uh, version of the LeSabre. I don't know how many people get that in this room. From the sound of it, nobody, but that's okay. It was a grandma car, but it was super comfortable. One day I'm driving home from work, a job I made very, very little money at, and I was driving home, finances are tight, and the check engine light comes on. 
So out of desperation and fear, I just put my hands on the car. I do not think this is biblical. I don't think this is good. But I said, Lord, in Jesus' name, heal this Buick. And the light went off. Get home, go to bed, think the Lord healed my car engine, okay? Wake up the next morning, turn the car on to go to work. Everything's fine, no check engine light, but guess what? No heat either. And so in 30-degree weather, I drove to church, or not church, but to work, and I was scraping the ice off the windshield and see my breath and stuff. The thing is that the indicator was gone, the event was gone, but the problem hadn't been dealt with. It was just buried. It was just pushed down. I didn't recognize it. I just said, I'm not going to even think about it, but the problem was still there, and it was affecting me in the present. Sometimes our reaction to the past is to, especially if you're a Christian and been born up in the church a long time, is to say, I am a new creation. The old is gone, and the new is here, and I don't have to think about the past. We say things like, let sleeping dogs lie. Why bring it up? What's done is done. It is what it is. Or my favorite, as Pumbaa says, put your behind in your past. And Timon says, no, put your past behind you. Hakuna Matata, no worries. Don't think about it. But if you're a child of the 90s or a parent of the 90s, you know that eventually your past will catch up with you, right? Yeah, okay, good. We're an expressive church, and we're here today. Amen. But without the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, our family's sin patterns and the resulting trauma for those consequences left alone do not disappear. You can ignore it. You pretend it's not there. You can pretend like you, it, it, that you are a new person. It will not affect you, but it just goes into hiding. That trauma from those sin patterns does not break you're just unaware of it. And it affects you every single day to how you handle your finances, to how you handle your relationships, how you handle stress, how you approach satisfaction, how you approach pleasure, how you approach the Bible, how you approach life. And more than that, sin doesn't just isolate itself to you. It affects not just you, but it affects your children and their children too. So really quickly, I know I want to show you in Abraham's line because it's more clear. You can see it just more clearly. But I want to show it and bring it back to Solomon today. I want to show you where it looks like here just really briefly, okay? David followed God really, really well. He loved the Lord. He followed God really well except for the little bit of adultery and murder in his life. Other than that, he did a great job of following God. And so David has a son, Solomon. In Scripture chapter 3, 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon loved God, but. And so you see Solomon loves God like David did, but you see these little compromises throughout his life. The one that really did him in is that he married foreign women, lots of foreign women that eventually turned his heart from God. Solomon has Rehoboam. And so Rehoboam follows God. He, he asks for advice good godly advice, then doesn't take it. He's smart in some ways and establishes his kingdom. But as soon as his reign over one tribe is established, the scripture in Chronicles says that he completely rejects the Lord. And he does what is evil or despised in God's sight. And not only that, the people follow suit. And so you see a man that was fully devoted but had struggles. Then you see a man that loved God but compromised. And then you see a son that loved God just enough to establish his kingdom. And then he completely rejected the Lord, followed evil paths, and then all the people followed along too. And finally, Rehoboam has a son named Abijam. Abijam. 
Next time, any pregnant moms, this name isn't very common. It's up for grabs. Abijam, that's great. He's not a great guy. Don't name your kid Abijam. He's the worst. He has no redeeming qualities. Right off the bat, Abijam is known as a man that completely rejects the Lord, does detestable, sinful things, things like child sacrifice, disgusting, gross, terrible things, and leads Israel, leads Jerusalem even worse than any of the people before him. The sin goes from a one-time thing to a small thing throughout an entire lifetime to an intentionally turning away from God to a complete lack of consideration of God. The sin pattern repeats, it mutates, and it gets worse. The sins of the fathers are repeated by the sons. Now, if you're feeling a little bit discouraged at this point, it's okay to feel that. I recognize as a father, and it's something that hurts me and I hate it, but I recognize is that I will screw my kids up some way, somehow. Why? Because I'm not perfect. I'm not Jesus. As much as I try to model him and be like him and become like him, I'm not perfect. I'm not a God. I know that someday there will be something in their life, a failure of mine, that will have hurt them and they will have to process and work through. And all I'm trying to do is minimize the damage to be the best parent I can and to not get stuck in how I'm not going to be perfect at it. If you weren't discouraged yet, that might have sent you over the line. <laughs> but I wanted to come here to encourage you, guys. I want to bring you the good news. 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 3. He committed the same sins as his father before him, and he was not faithful to the Lord his God as his ancestor David had been. But for David's sake, the Lord his God allowed his descendants to continue ruling, shining like a lamp, he gave Abijam a son to rule after him in Jerusalem. For David had done what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, had obeyed the Lord's command throughout his entire life, except for the affair concerning Uriah the Hittite. This phrase, for the sake of David, pops up over every generation after David. Every time that you see Solomon and Rehoboam and Abijah disappointing or following or leaving God, you see this phrase that God remembers David. The other part of Exodus chapter 4 is this, verses 5 and 6. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. That's something you can get excited about because you're going to need that good news today, church. The faithful actions, the commitments of David, even with his faults and his imperfections, caused a blessing that was maintained over the family line that lasts much, much longer than the sin patterns that are there as well. And this is the reality. You were born today with a predisposition towards certain sins. You were born, things that were passed down in your family with just these are the struggles that you're going to deal with. Things that you didn't deserve, things that you just inherited. In my family, I inherited a great set of teeth. I'm not talking about whiteness, I'm not talking about straight. I'm saying never, like, we, I think I've had two cavities in my whole lifetime. It's not because I brush well or floss well. I think that's all crock. We don't believe in any of that. But... I have great teeth because I inherited great dental health from my family. You know what I didn't inherit, though? There's a lot of hair on top of my head. 
I did nothing to deserve that. It was just given to me. There are things that you have done, nothing to deserve it, but you've been given this predisposition to have this addiction. There are things that have been passed on to you from abuse or, or sin or trauma in your family line that gave you a predisposition towards anger, towards unleashing, towards gossip, towards frustration. You didn't do anything to deserve it. That's not an excuse. And there's something that God did is that he said, I can come and reverse the scales. I can turn it around, the song that we're singing just a little bit ago. Here's why. If you look at this, the, the sin patterns go to the third and the fourth generation. But if you get somebody in the family line that loves the Lord, that serves God, that follows him faithfully, the blessing that is released on that family lasts a thousand generations. And this is what I want you to think about. Yesterday we had a party for the kids. And so we had a little kiddie pool and we're cleaning up afterwards. And so I go over to this pool that's really heavy, full of water. I'm struggling to flip it over to empty it out to clean up. And Nellie runs up and she says, I'm a good helper, Dad. I can help. Nellie's my three-year-old. So how many know? Nellie grabs the side of the pool and she's pulling. And how many know that Nellie's more of just an obstacle than a help, really? Okay? I do like 99% of the work. She gets 1%, but who gets all the praise from the family? Okay? Nellie, not me. You see that the scales are reversed here. You're saying that little part is so tiny compared to the blessing that can be released. You're not a perfect person. None of us are perfect parents. None of us are perfect followers of Jesus. And none of us had perfect parents or perfect people in our line. But those patterns of sin, those repeated, those curses that have been handed down from generation to generation, somebody, get somebody in the family that loves the Lord, that follows God with all their heart, and you can secure a blessing for your family or release or be an avenue of blessing to your family that will last far greater, far longer, do far more than the repeated patterns of sin. Amen? The devotion of one man carried the blessing of God forward for thousands of generations. You can be a waymaker. You can be a trendsetter. You can be a fork in the stream for your family. This is the reality and this is the bad news today. You will mess up. You will pass things on to your kids that you did not want to do. You will pass things down that you can't affect. But at the same time, you can be a fork in the road. Some of you had terrible parents. They tried, you can love them, you can honor them, but there were things that you were given, it was just an unfair hand. Some of you have had inherited things that were really, really difficult. Some of you participated in sin that has caused a struggle for your family, and some of you are just around in the wrong place at the wrong time. I had a friend growing up that just had pornographic magazines. It was just a normal. She didn't search them out. She didn't look for them, but her father had stacked them in the bathroom. It was just a normal thing. She was just around an environment of sin. She did nothing to deserve that. Some of you have those things around you, but God can use you to release blessing into your family line, to break those sin patterns. 
They do not have to perpetuate. They do not have to continue on. You can be an avenue of blessing to your family. If you love the Lord, if you fear the Lord, if you follow him, if you allow him to use you, if you allow him to come in and to break those things off of you, he can be that chain breaker. When Amy and I were engaged, uh, I was coming up to visit her family, and the whole family was over just enjoying each other's company. This was pre-kids. We're all just hanging out, having a good time. But uh, I must have done something wrong because Amy felt like I needed more Holy Spirit in my life. So she's like, hey, everybody, Mom, Dad, Abigail, Allison, Stephen, Dan, can everybody just pray for Josh? I'm sitting here like a hamburger halfway in my mouth. (laughs) Okay, I guess so. Let's get a word from the Lord. So we go into this time of ministry, and they're praying for us, and... uh, Going into marriage, I had this hidden fear. Uh, I'm very aware of the sin patterns in my family's line. The things that um, have been repeated and handed down from father, son, mother to daughter. I've seen them in my own life. As a teenager, young adult, before I was fully following God. Deep areas of sin things that I knew that my father had done, I followed in his steps. That's not to throw my dad or my family under the rug. It's just the reality of family. You get the good and you get the bad. And so I had this fear of going into marriage of, man, I don't want to pass these things on to my kids. I don't want to pass these struggles on to my kids. I never vocalized that to Amy. I never vocalized it to anybody. I actually check engine lighted it. I just pushed it down and pushed it aside and ignored it and didn't deal with it. But I remember out of that ministry time that I had a sister-in-law now, she said, Josh, I just got a word for you. God says the sins of your parents and the sins of you are not going to get passed on to your kids. It's going to be broken in you. And that just filled me with so much relief. So I can look at my son and I told Amy, I've passed on things. I'm not perfect father. There are things I come to weekly, if not daily, and say, I'm sorry that I handled this way. I'm growing, I'm trying, and I'm trying to work through these things. But there are certain things I look at my son and I think, Noble will not have to deal with that if he chooses not to deal with it. That's something that stopped in me. Family, You can be that kind of way maker, that fork in the road. You can be that avenue of blessing, the thousands of blessings. But for the sake of my servant David, I will not strip the kingdom from his line. But for the sake of David, I will not do this completely. But for the sake of my servant, the one that loved me, that followed me, that faithfully was after me, had my own heart, I will still keep blessing in the line of the family. Jack Hayford, he says it this way, apart from repentance and the consequent deliverance through Jesus Christ, any believer may be a carrier, as it were, transmitting to future generations spiritual genetics of the past. But the opposite can take effect in Christ. Blessings to future generations are assured for those who love God, keep his commandments, and no earlier generation's influence is ever a fatalistic predeterminate of the present, where God's power and grace are invoked. Your past very much so defines your present. One pastor says it this way, that it does not have to determine your future. 
Your past is what got you right here. Your past and your parents' past is what gave you the struggles you're working with, but it does not have to pass on to your kids and your future generation. You, but for the sake of my servant David, can be an avenue of blessing to your family. How many people would say, Lord, I want that. Lord, I want to be an avenue of blessing to be released through me. Holy Spirit, I want you to use me in this. Proverbs 14, 26 says that those who fear the Lord are secure. He will be a refuge for their children. Why? Because the person that loves the Lord invites Jesus to come in to do the things that we can't do. Those sin patterns, those addictions, the things that Josh struggled with broken because Josh was so strong, because I have such great willpower. I'll tell you, I try, I, I still try willpower over sin. But eventually I get tired and I break down and I give up. Jesus Christ is the one through the power of the Holy Spirit that can break those traumatic events off of your life. Galatians chapter 3 says, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he hung on the tree, when he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Guys, we're about to go. The band's going to sing in just a little bit. But we're going to go back into a time of altar call and response. As I was preparing for this message, I felt that the proper response today was that we needed to move. We need to move from our seats. We need to move to the altar. We need to move ourselves into a place of humility before the Lord. We need to position ourselves in a vulnerable place before God. I'm going to give you some very practical steps at the end of this altar call, but first I'd like to just invite Jesus into this moment. First, I'd like you to invite the Holy Spirit into this moment to just minister with you. And so this invite today is for parents. Maybe you didn't parent well. Maybe you have kids that are far off from the Lord and you've seen those repeated patterns, but today... You can take a stand to be an avenue of blessing for your family. Today, you can bring that forward and say, Lord, I wasted this time. I didn't steward this time. But Lord, I, with whatever time I have left, with whatever influence I have left, with whatever energy I have left, I want to be used of you. Maybe in the course of this conversation, you've identified a family trait that you know is not of God. And you just want to bring that forward. Lord, family struggles with greed. Lord, would you just break this out of my family? You can bring that forward to the altar today. Maybe you've seen the power of generational sin working in your family, and you're, you know that you just want it to end with you. Lord, I have struggled with what my father struggled with and what his father struggled with. Lord, I see those patterns, and I see it in my own life, and I do not want it anymore. Come to the altar today. Let me just read this verse over to you one more time. I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Church, can we just stand today?